In America, we do not punish prayer. We do not tear down crosses. We do not ban symbols of faith. We do not muzzle preachers and pastors. In America, we celebrate faith. We cherish religion. We lift our voices in prayer, and we raise our sights to the glory of God. Those were the words of the President of the United States on Tuesday night, words with which I wholeheartedly agree, except that he stated them as true in the present, and many of us wonder how much longer that will actually be true. There are obvious and emboldened forces politically, academically, corporately, media forces who honestly hate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and who are constantly at work to remove freedoms that we have enjoyed for 400 years in this land. For those of us who grew up in America, we just might not appreciate how special a gift it is that we have been afforded. We're used to it. Freedom of religion. What does that even mean? It means more than to be able to believe what it is you want to believe. Anybody can do that secretly in any country. It means to be able to worship publicly as God defines it. It means to be able to speak up the truth in public without any repercussions from the government. If we are punished or if we are restricted for speaking truth, we will no longer have freedom of religion. And then I would ask you, which one of you, if and when that happens, will still be speaking the truth in public? In the shadow of this growing threat, and it is a growing threat, what are you doing right now with the freedoms you have right now to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ when there are no repercussions? even as we pray for those who are seeking to defend our churches. As we return, I hope for the last time here now, uh, in this lesson on the basics of evangelism, let us realize the urgent need and the present opportunity to do as much evangelism as we want in this great country of ours, to speak up for the gospel and for righteousness because they go together. If you can't speak for righteousness, then you can't convict them of sin, and the gospel doesn't make any sense. And so we have to be able to speak up for both. You know the text. Let's refresh our memory in reading its content again. Acts chapter 11 and verses 19 through 26. Acts 11, 19 through 26. As Luke writes, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. 
for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Again, this passage is full of helpful, practical instruction about evangelism. That's why we kind of slowed down when we hit this text to pull out these principles so that we could learn, learn to follow the pattern of the early church that they set for us. We need to grow in our evangelism here at Hope Bible Church, and as we do that, we need a biblical approach to evangelism, and so we're laying down these ground rules for biblical evangelism. By way of review from the first two uh, messages, the first ground rule that we covered a couple of times ago is that everybody is responsible to evangelize, right? Every one of you should be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. We kind of saw that in verses 19 to 20. Everyone's scattered from the persecution of Stephen. Everybody's out there speaking. And we learned, secondly, that we should begin witnessing where? Right where we are, right where God has already connected us with the relationships that he's already given us providentially. That also came from verses 19 and 20. In other words, start where God uh, puts you. Bloom where you're planted is another way of putting it. The third ground rule was preach the right message. Don't want to get out there and just talk about religion or mess up the message. Verse 20 says they were preaching the Lord Jesus. That's a summary of what they said. Um, we put a little gospel outline in your bulletin this morning. That gospel outline comes from Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, Dr. MacArthur's church. I remember when we were out there training, they used to call the program associated with that gospel outline discipleship evangelism, and um, it's been used here in our church also as a training curriculum for evangelism. Put it in there. Why? Study it. Memorize it. Use it. If you don't have any other outline, now you have an outline. Let's see how God can use you this week, this month, in talking to someone about Christ. If you're ashamed to even talk about Christ with someone else, are you even a believer? And then from the last time, also by way of review, the fourth ground rule, you need when you go out there to rely on the power of God. And this is so important. We saw in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them. How wonderful to know that when you go do this particular activity, God is behind you. God is with you. Um, the power of God attends you when you go out, when you go this wonderful business of winning souls for Christ. The power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit as you pray will be with you. The fifth ground rule also from last time is that when we go out, the pressure is not on us. The only thing really we're responsible for is to what? Is to speak, to be faithful. But the responsibility of true conversion, true regeneration is all on God's shoulders. Put it there and relax. Don't worry about how many converts you have. Gee, you know, nobody gets saved when I talk and 20 people get saved when that other person talks. Maybe they have a better gift. God does what he does. The wind blows where it blows. The Spirit of God does as he wants to do. That is not on you. Take that pressure off of you. Here we see a very large number that believed and turned to the Lord in verse 21. Remember, that's a historical marker in the book of Acts. As you read through Acts, and as you see other times in church history, the results are not the same. Um, many places and times where hardly anyone responds to the gospel. It doesn't matter. Take the pressure off yourself. It will free you to go ahead and witness. You realize, yes, I desperately want them to get saved, but no, I have no control over that, but I'm not going to keep my mouth quiet because I think they might not respond. Don't do that. You speak up and leave the results to God. Today, we're going to consider five more ground rules. We'll do it a little more briefly as we go through them. So you can write this down. Sixth, 
Sixth ground rule is conversion is our goal. When we go out to evangelize, what are we doing? We're not just doing, you know, what Pastor Leek says to do in church. We actually have a goal in mind, and it is that we would convert someone. And that's still in verse 21. It says, these Gentiles who believed, and it gives us a little description, notice it, turned to the Lord. That little verb there, turned, epistrepho in Greek, is a common New Testament word for conversion. If you do a theological study of conversion, center it around the verb strepho and epistrepho and the other cognates like that, you'll see this is about conversion. It was, for example, in Peter's exhortation to the Jews back in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, where he said, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. When we get forward to Acts 15, 19, it'll be used again. They were turning to God from among the Gentiles. So you have these Gentiles worshiping idols, and now they're turning. There's a process of turning. One after another, they were coming to faith in God. That turning is conversion. Conversion means repentance. Repentance from former beliefs to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They have to abandon their old beliefs and come to rest and land on their new beliefs. So what they formerly believed, they no longer believe. Now they have a new set of beliefs and a new set of practices that go along with that. It means they immediately had a radical change in their lives. They were converted from believing in other gods, other religions. Their old philosophies of life no longer are acceptable. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul was writing to those who had already converted, and he said, you turned to God from idols to serve a living God, a living and true God. Heard your old gods were not living and they weren't true, and you made a wise decision, you turned away from them, and you turned to a living God. That's what you did. That's conversion. That was repentance. By the way, I could ask you, have you been converted yet? You come to church, but have you been converted? Are you serving a living God now, or are you just coming and listening? Someone who's truly converted changes. They dumped their former beliefs. Conversion is the human side of salvation. What's the divine side of salvation called? It's called regeneration. God supernaturally, I would say, and secretly regenerates a heart, a human heart. What does that mean? He grants life to a heart that is dead in sin. He just does that. And then immediately, that very split second, as the life is born into that person, man's responsibility, and it happens immediately, his responsibility is to repent and believe. He responds to the divine summons on his heart by placing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the divine work of regeneration that empowers him to be able to convert. Really, anything short of that, that is conversion that would be based on human persuasion or a conversion that is not based on regeneration is merely human emotion. It's merely some religious ritual. It may be a religious conversion. You know, in sociology, in college, when we studied religious conversion, really they're talking about that when a Buddhist converts to Islam or when a Muslim converts to uh you know, some other, maybe to Hinduism or something like that, or one form of Christianity to another outward form of Christianity, and they call that religious conversion. There's lots of religious conversion that is not based upon a regenerate, changed heart. It may be a religious conversion outwardly, but it's not a true Christian conversion inwardly. Again, I ask you, have you had a genuine and true conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ where he changed your heart? If a person's religious conversion is just about, well, I got water baptized, 
You know, I started attending church. I started, you know, not cussing as much or something like that. That's not going to last. That's not really the radical change of a true Christian conversion because it's not based on God changing the heart first. But true inward conversion was back then and still is now the goal of your evangelism when you go out and you talk to somebody. We must rely on the regenerating power of God if we're going to be seeing someone brought to the Lord. You go and preach the gospel. That gospel is the power of God to salvation. And then you've prayed for a lost soul. And then it's up to God's sovereignty whether he moves in there and opens the eyes of the blind. Why would you go out and evangelize and risk scorn or speak up at work and risk not getting a promotion? Would you do it to obey God? Of course. Would you do it because your ultimate goal is you want to see God glorified? Yes, I think the ultimate goal of evangelism and missions is we want to see more worshipers of God. Amen? But your aim is not merely to talk to them about God or get them involved in a praise service. We're talking to them about religion. If you have a nice religious discussion, that's not your goal. Your goal is to present the gospel truthfully so they're persuaded by the gospel to become believers in the Lord. When you witness, please don't get sidetracked by lesser goals. Oh, the devil can be so tricky with this. There's so many tempting subjects. There's so many ways the dog starts barking or some other topic starts coming up or they want to just shift it away from the personal aspects of having to confront the fact that they're a sinner. Don't let that happen. Your goal is not to win a debate with them either. It's not to show that you're a little smarter than them. By the way, it's great to be prepared and apologetics, to have good answers. What does that do? That helps them listen to you a little bit more. That gives credibility to the Bible, right? There are a lot of people that don't understand how accurate the Bible is. They've been lied to by a media over and over and over again. It's the most accurate book of antiquity by far. We are even seeing that in the book of Acts. Luke as an historian. So it's good to prepare in those things. But your goal is not to win that debate. Our goal is not to make friends with unbelievers. You might say, well, I'm going to make a friend with an unbeliever. That's nice. That's nice. We want to be friendly. Go do nice things to everybody, including the household of faith, but go out and love your unbelieving friends. That's fine. That's not the goal. If you, if you make a friend and you never bring up the gospel or you don't challenge them with their need to receive Christ, are you really a friend to them? Are you really? Not much of a friend if you just say, you know, where you spend eternity is not that big of a deal to me. Our goal is not even to get them to come to church. But an invite to church is a means to a goal. When you invite someone to church, then they're going to talk about religion. When they talk about religion and talk about your life, you could say, well, let me tell you how God changed my life. Boom, you're right into the gospel. Or if they come to church, we have an opportunity to talk with them here. It's a means to a goal. It's a great idea. Invite someone to church. We're in the process now of praying, praying about and reviving our old invitations ministry where we equip you with how do I invite someone to church and come out? And I think it's a, it's a great thing to do, but that's not the goal. The goal is conversion. Our invite is to get them to think about the gospel and get them saved. Never apologize for trying to convert somebody to Jesus Christ. I think that's one of the things the devil has done the most in the minds of believers is actually when you're out trying to convert someone, someone wants to make you look like you're the bad guy. Witnessing is the most loving thing you can do for another person. When they're converted, do you know what happens to them? Be too much to list. 
They're rescued from divine judgment. Stop right there. That's enough. They're given a fabulous home in heaven. When we're saying that when we all get to heaven, that's for believers only. Because most people don't go to heaven when they die. They're made a part of the forever family of God immediately. Look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, look behind you. Look at the other local churches that preach the gospel. Those are all of your family forever. What an incredible family we have. They're washed clean from every sin. You have something ugly in your past you want never to be discovered. It will be discovered. But here's the thing. The gospel can wash it all clean. So converting sinners is a good goal. It's a beautiful thing. Proverbs 11.30, he who is wise wins souls. James 5.19, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Conversion should result in a fully functioning member of the body of Christ to help build the church of Jesus. As someone gets saved, they enter into the church. What do we want to see? We want to see them now responding to that gospel. We want to see them entering into the waters of baptism and making their confession that, yes, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we want them getting out of the waters of baptism and going and participating in the Lord's Supper and coming to church and, and hearing sermons and being taught in uh, classes, loving their families when they go back home, lapping up biblical instruction, fellowshipping with the saints, and then saying, you know what, I want to get busy serving the Lord Jesus Christ as well. When we see all of that, then we know someone's truly been converted. That's the sixth ground rule. Seventh, evangelism must be the concern of the local church. This is our seventh ground rule. Evangelism must be the concern of the local church. And that's in verse 22. Look at it. Verse 22, it says, The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. What's going on here? I think what we're seeing here is something very healthy, and I don't want you to miss it. The more mature and the more established church in Jerusalem, who were mostly Jews, were showing interest in and solidarity with this new church, this new work in this place called Antioch, who were Gentiles mostly. This solidarity... From church to church is one indication that the early Christians viewed themselves as one universal church. Each local church was really connected to the entire body of Christ throughout the world. And so these good and these wise leaders in Jerusalem knew that what would grow and what would happen in Antioch among the Gentiles would surely affect the Jewish church in the Jerusalem world as well. So rather than turning a blind eye to the explosion of evangelism that was happening, the elders there got together and they prayed and they discussed what should we do with this evangelism explosion. And they decided that they needed a trustworthy man to give them a firsthand report so they would know what to say and how to guide and how to advise that church. Barnabas was the man they chose. Love this guy, Barnabas. We've seen him before, haven't we? I mean, this is one of the characters of the New Testament that needs to get more attention than he does. Boy, what an encourager. What a key man. What connections this man has brought throughout Acts we've already seen. And we've seen Barnabas in Acts. He, he was the one that was revealed as a generous man in contrast to uh, Sapphira and Ananias, the bad Ananias, way back in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. He's a courageous man. How do we know that? Because he was the one that went and got Paul when Paul had the reputation of persecuting the church and brought Paul, remember, to the apostles and connected them and said, no, Paul's conversion is real. We need to use this man. That was Barnabas making that connection. 
and he's called the son of encouragement. That means he was an encouraging man. Some, some leaders are not encouraging to be around. This man was. He's full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. He was able to size up what needed to happen in a situation and recommend a course of action. This is the kind of guy you want at a church. Fully committed to the cause. Well, they knew Barnabas would give them a reliable report, and so they sent him off on an official mission to the new church. Church, there's that word. It hasn't been used that much in the book of Acts already. You're going to see it increasingly used as we go further along. Ecclesia, it's used down in verse 26 of this church in Antioch. What does church mean? It does not refer to a building. It refers to the people, to the believers, right? And it refers not just to when the believers were gathered and assembled together. Yes, this is the church when we're gathered, but the church remains a community even when they're scattered. Right? We always say, you know, we gather for the saints and scatter for the ain'ts. You know, we're a church now and we're a church when we go out there. We're really, we're a community 24-7. So we're a church on Sunday, we're a church on Monday. We're not, we're not assembled, but the, the term encompasses all of that. And this gives us a little insight as to the role of the local church in evangelism. Unfortunately, in our modern age, too often evangelism is done quite apart from the local church. And the local church is left behind in this task of doing evangelism. I think the people who are out there forming their own organizations and doing that have a good heart. I would not impugn any motives at all, but it's very clear from the New Testament that the local church should be the center of evangelism going on in the community. God designed evangelism to happen going out from the local church. I think sometimes people with a zeal for evangelism get frustrated with their local church because the leaders aren't doing enough to fan the flames of that. And they say, look, I got to get out there and I got to go talk to a sinner. And so they do. That's great. But then when it gets pulled further and further away from helping the local church, that's not good. Evangelism must be connected to the local church. The local church should be the network of evangelism, as we see here. Churches should work not to stifle the work of the Holy Spirit, nor ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, they're doing their own thing, just let it go on. Nor even micromanage some wonderful movement out of existence, you know, coming in and putting so many rules and regulations on it, nobody wants to do that ministry anymore. No, that's not what the local church is supposed to do. What are we supposed to do? To understand the movement and then to guide it and encourage it. Some people, when they're doing their evangelism, they don't want the church peeking into anything that they're doing. Uh, they don't want the church leaders knowing what's going on. They have their own Bible study out there. I hope nobody discovers about it. They're not regulated by church leaders. They don't want to be. They're doing their own thing. They keep the church at arm's length. That is not biblical evangelism. Evangelism is church work, as we're going to see the church is needed to guide it. Sometimes very bad things spin off of men or women who are loaded with religious zeal but have little biblical wisdom and maturity. The church can encourage and guide and train evangelism. If you start, for example, some thriving outreach and you're all excited about it, don't hide it from your leaders here. The local church should want to come alongside you. The local church should want your ministry to thrive. We should not make rules that are too stringent so that now you're going to give up on it. We want God to use you. We want your spiritual gifts active. But we want what you're doing to progress wisely, and we want it connected to the community of believers because that's what God wants. 
In fact, I would say this, every single ministry at Hope Bible Church should be thinking about how can we do a better job with evangelism? How can we do a better job with evangelism? I noticed the youth a couple weekends ago had gotten activated by the leaders there in a youth ministry to go and get engaged in some ministry. That is something we have always encouraged and wanted for our youth ministry. But youth have a lot of energy. They have a lot of insights. If you're in middle school or elementary school, even high school, definitely, you could lead someone to Christ, right? Often our youth are not used enough. Small groups, do you have any attempt at outreach and evangelism throughout the year? Do you have a project? Do you have a way of inspiring the people in your group saying, hey, let's try this? Men's ministry, women's ministry, college and career, even counseling, the resource center that's about to start, or parenting classes. There's so many ways to outreach, I think, in just about any ministry in the church. Obviously, greeters and welcome center people, your front line. You should be honing your skills in presenting the gospel. You should be practicing presenting the gospel to people. Our advertising ministry, it's not just about advertising. It's getting people alerted to what's missing from your life. You know, you go and you go to work and take care of your family and life is a drudgery. Have you ever thought what life is all about? Those are the kinds of things that trigger people and say, why don't you try that church down the road, show up a little bit, and maybe there's a spiritual component to your life that's missing that, le- that makes you feel empty and it begins to whet their appetite for those things. That can be used greatly. Our radio ministry has tremendous growing possibilities for those with the foresight to look ahead and see how God can use it mightily. Really, every ministry should be thinking how they can improve outreach. And we need new ministries. Maybe God's tapping you on the shoulder, tugging you on the heart, something that you have a burden for. We used to have Spanish translation of our sermons right here on Sunday mornings. There'd be a row of people with headsets on it. We haven't had that in years and years. Would God lay that on someone's heart? You know, you have to give up a little bit of your own learning so that we can begin establishing a habit and people can come and begin to hear the word exposited in Spanish. We used to have prayer counselors on Sunday morning, so if someone was really, really affected by the sermon on Sunday morning, there'd be a little place to go off and pray and pour their heart out. And some of those people found out, you know what, I'm not saved. And that I just realized that. I, I've been around the church my whole life, but I'm not saved. We used to have a Wednesday evening service because we knew some people were already committed at their uh, other church on Sundays and couldn't get out to hope. And so we wanted another worship time for that. And um, that we no longer have. Boy, the possibilities exist there. We just need to work together. It's the concern of the local church. Eighth, number eight, ground rule is godly leadership deepens evangelism. That's verses 22 and 23. I'll say it again. Godly leadership deepens evangelism. Look at it again. Then when he arrived, that's Barnabas. So he's arrived in Antioch, right? What happened? He witnessed the grace of God, and he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Verse 24, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Notice, many came to the Lord, and he shows up, many came to the Lord. It's being extended. Listen, brethren, all godly movements need not just the church, but good leadership. Leadership is the key. Oh my, how we need leadership in evangelism at Hope Bible Church. Godly leadership is a real service to the church. We don't have enough 
strong and yet humble leaders in our congregation. Here we see the emergence of Barnabas as a key leader of a movement. Listen, a movement he did not start. Isn't that interesting? He didn't start this. But he was used by God to deepen it and to extend it. Barnabas arrives, and before he starts blabbing his mouth, before he starts pulling everybody together and saying, look, I'm the experienced person and I know what should be going on here. Before he starts talking, giving his advice, it says he did something there. Look at the text. What did he do? It says he witnessed the grace of God. He saw something going on. In other words, he came first to observe. Oh, that's what good leaders need to do. First, gather the facts. Know what's going on. Don't get your information secondhand, right? Before he chose a course of action, before he ran up to get Saul of Tarsus, before any of this stuff, he said, hmm, let's see what's going on here. What did Barnabas see? It says he, he saw the grace of God. Now, you know you can't see an attribute. <laughs> so, I saw patience the other day. No, you, you can't actually see patience. What you see is someone being patient, right? And I saw wisdom the other day. You can't actually see that. You see someone doing something wise, right? Well, he saw the grace of God. That's another way of saying he saw the gospel of grace spreading from heart to heart, person becoming believer after believer and being changed. God's grace is another way of saying the gospel was spreading from heart to heart. God's message of grace was going out. It was being received. It was changing lives. People were getting converted, not by any religious works. They were not being saved by, you know, here are the five, five ways to do this or the three steps you need to take. It was just the grace of God that was changing people. In the last part of verse 23, it says, Barnabas rejoiced with this grace. Wow, that lets you know where his heart was, right? That was a heartfelt response from this leader. He's a leader who loves to see the Lord Jesus glorified. He loves to see the word of God spread. He loves to see the grace of God and the gospel, you know, conquering the lives of people. And then after Barnabas made his careful observations, it says next, he did something. Do you see that? He encouraged them. He encouraged them. As a lot of people don't understand what biblical encouragement is. I think uh, we've kind of bought into the psychological way of encouraging people in our society. I hear this a lot even in church, you know, like, you can do it, you're okay, you're good, don't feel bad. That's not biblical encouragement. Uh, if you were to tell me, I can do it, I'm not bad, I know you're a liar. Because <laughs> I know I can't do it, and I know I'm not good. Paul said, there's nothing good that dwells in me. If there's nothing good that dwells in Paul, I don't have to give me anything good that dwells in Tom. So how are you going to encourage somebody without making them feel like a rat? Well, you got to direct their eyes to who? Christ. Biblical encouragement is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what weaknesses you have. It doesn't matter what failures you bring to the equation. Brother or sister in Christ, Christ is with you. Remember Moses? He wanted to get out of the job of delivering the people from Egypt. Remember his excuse? I don't talk all that well. Now, that's a great excuse. You're going to be a prophet and you can't talk all that well? That's a great excuse. God wasn't buying it. What did he say? I'll be with your mouth. But Moses persisted in his low self-esteem. 
And he said, no, please send my brother Aaron. And you know, rather than getting a pat on the back from the Lord God, God got angry with Moses. That's right. Why? Because Moses' problem wasn't a low self-esteem. Moses' problem was he didn't believe that when God was with him, it was going to make any difference at all to his mouth. That's called unbelief. That's called unbelief. Barnabas came with encouragement. He came specifically with this message. Have a resolute heart. Remain faithful to Christ. Here are all these new converts, right? What's he going to tell them? Stay true. Don't depart. Don't walk away. Abide in Christ. Prosmeno is the term that was used. Don't abandon Christ. You've come to Christ now. You made the right decision now. Don't walk away from him. Do you know that defection from the Christian faith was a sad reality in the first century, just as it is now? Barnabas was experienced enough in evangelism and discipleship and church work to know that their temptations in some ways had just begun. They were going to come to Christ, and as soon as they came to Christ, there was going to be that moment of euphoria. We talk about that as the honeymoon stage. You know, the new person's converted, and they have that glow on their face, and they love the Lord Jesus, and they want to get involved in everything in church. But you wait six months or three months or a year, and all of a sudden, a person realizes, wow, this following Jesus thing is hard. It's not always joy. There's all kinds of attacks and temptations that come my way. Barnabas knew that. And some of them at that point in time, they, they turn back. They say, sayonara, I'm out of here. And they go back to their paganism. It was easier. Or they go into rank unbelief in our society. So Barnabas immediately seeks to, to ground them in Christ. You made a great start. Your heart needs to be true. Get into the word. Deepen your faith. Make sure your faith is true. Get grounded. How wonderful to have this kind of a leader among the people helping the work of evangelism. Please notice what kind of a man that was needed here to help grow this church with all of the worldly business models about leadership, you know, that are in vogue these days. Barnabas doesn't seem to fit that too well. If you were on some committee for a church and you had to hire the next pastor and you wanted to boost the numbers in your church, you wanted to make your church larger, you were sad because there were people leaving the church and you wanted to stir up the excitement at the church level, what kind of a man would you say, hey, let's go after that kind of a man? Let's hire him. Who would you choose? Would it be someone with a charming personality? Someone with uh, great speaking abilities, a media persona, a CEO with a ton of self-confidence, you know? You hear all these people talk on TV and it's like the one, the one rule you must not break is never speak as if you don't know what you're talking about. But they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I hate hearing people talk with confidence when they don't know what they're talking about. But it's like they're always portraying confidence. When you have more confidence than you have knowledge and experience, what is that? That's pride. God doesn't use a man like that. Who would you choose? A great storyteller? He's going to wow the crowds. He's going to have them laughing. Look how Barnabas is described. He's described as good. <laughs> I love that. Good. What kind of a man are you going to get? We're going to get a good man. Agathos. Doesn't sound too descriptive, does it? What does that mean? That means he was of good quality. He was beneficial to other people. He lived rightly. He could be counted on. He was truthful. He was kind. He was loving. He, he walked righteously. 
It also says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a spiritual man. He was yielded to the Spirit of Christ. He meditated constantly on the words of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a spiritual man, get into the words of the Holy Spirit. It says he was full of faith. Now, we all have faith, I hope, but he was full of it, full of faith. Faith dominated the way he thought. He wasn't like divided in his thinking where one moment he sounded like he's going to make a decision out of faith and the next moment he's like, oh, I don't know, hand-wringing, you know. This is a man full of faith, full of the confidence, not in himself. This isn't personal optimism. This isn't belief in itself. This was confidence in the Lord, full of faith. Optimism or positivity is not the same thing as faith, beloved. We can't have people in leadership who believe in man's potential, man doing this and man doing that, but those who believe in God and his power. Nor can we have men who pretend to be experienced and all wise, but they end up being in leadership and they sound a lot like naysayers. We can't get that done. That's too hard. There's not enough money for that. Barnabas knew God and had faith in God's power. Deacons, elders, ministry leaders, you must always remember that your decisions must be made in faith. The whole church, the whole idea of church, the whole idea of a local church is a faith venture. It's not a business. Leaders need to be people who know how to pray and ask God for great things and then do what? Step out in faith before you see the supplies given. If you wait until the supplies are given, you're not making decisions by faith. You're making decisions by sight. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, the time of Joshua? They were about to enter into the land, and they were told, take the Ark of the Covenant with the priests and go down into the water. When he was told to do that, the waters were not parted. The waters were still flowing. It was only after they got down in the river God parted the water. That's faith. Are you a leader of a ministry at Hope Bible Church? What are you doing to expand that ministry by faith? Not just maintaining the status quo. Anybody can do that. That's not a leader. A leader inspires men and women to get involved, to step out, to do something that hasn't been done before. I think that's what Barnabas is here to do. His involvement took a work of the Spirit and deepened it, took it beyond where it was. He added more coming to the Lord. I know some of you have been faithful, and you can speak truth, and that's good. But can you be inspirational? Can you lead? The Word of God is meant to generate love in the heart toward God. Speaking truth alone is not enough for a leader. Biblical encouragement reaches the soul with passion and draws the people out towards obedience. We need leaders, godly leaders, in order to fan the flames of evangelism here. All right, number nine. Ninth, converts must be followed up with teaching. I said before you were going to see the importance of teaching, and here's where it is in verses 25 and 26. New converts must be followed up with teaching. Look at the end of verse 25 into 26. And he, Barnabas, left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember, that's the other name for Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and, there it is, taught considerable number. Again, Barnabas had an impact on the new movement. 
But Barnabas saw the potential and the size of the movement and the momentous work that was ahead of him, and he concluded, I need some help. His gifts were not enough. What a humble man. We often need more than one leader with different skills to get the job done right. Barnabas remembered Saul's unique gifts and that Jesus himself had met him on the road to Damascus and called him to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he set off in the midst of this great revival. He left it for a period of time, and he headed north to look for Saul. Paul was last known to be in Tarsus, his hometown, but they didn't know exactly where he was. So it says Barnabas had to look for him, and then eventually he found him, And then Saul's response is not given other than he seems to have had a high regard for Barnabas, right? Because whatever Saul was doing, and we're not really told what he was doing up there, but whatever he was doing, he dropped it. He dropped it like a hot potato, and he followed Barnabas to Antioch. Listen, sometimes God wants us to change our ministries because there's something more significant he's calling you to do. Some of you may need to reassess the ministry you're in so that you can fulfill the call of God on your heart. There is so much more, so much more this church has to do. I don't want any of you to be underachievers in the call of God on your life. Well, when they got back to Antioch, it notes that they poured themselves into teaching the new church. Please notice the great importance of teaching. They taught these new converts for an entire year. And I believe they were doing it more than just one day a week. Teaching is that important to a church. Teaching is that central to the extension of evangelism in a local church. You know we stress teaching here at Hope Bible Church. You've got that, I think. But we have solid biblical reason for doing so. I really have no patience for people that say and think we teach too much. We don't. Until Christ is formed in all of us, we need much more teaching. Obviously, people who say things like that are not aware of what biblical ministry is all about. Teaching, teaching, and more teaching is the key to the success of a church. And yes, it's evangelism endeavors. That verb there, taught, didasco, very common term. It really refers to doctrinal instruction. What does that mean? That means that all of the historic truths of the Christian faith were being taught to these converts so they would know all about God and his attributes, Christ and his work, the Holy Spirit and what his coming meant, man, sin, salvation, the church, yes, even end times, all of that. But more than that, they were taught how do we live in light of that. In the epistles of the New Testament, you have the samples of the kinds of things the apostles would teach, grounding them in the doctrines, teaching them how to live, exhorting them in those things. Teaching grounds believers in the faith and ensures that they're saved. Many people there are that come in and appear to have faith, but as they're taught, we become aware whether or not they really are saved or not. A large part of evangelism is teaching. Long before you try to persuade somebody to receive Christ, tell them who he is. Oh, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. If people could just understand who he is, the persuasion is in the description. Work on your description. Work on your explanations of Christ. What makes him different from Muhammad? Are you kidding me? From Joseph Smith, are you kidding me? 
There is no comparison. When people are just taught, it has its own persuasion in it. People's minds need to be changed, but the proof of a true disciple is that if their mind is changed, they will continue in the teaching. Do you remember what Jesus did with a bunch of Jews that said that they believed in him in John chapter 8, verse 31? Here are the words that he said to them there. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. In other words, you've come out here and you say you believe in me. I'm going to give you a test. If I keep teaching you and you keep to my teaching, then I know you're really my true followers, my true disciples. Sometimes we think we led someone to Christ. We're all excited. Pick up the phone. Hey, I led someone to Christ. How do you know? Well, he just prayed the sinner's prayer. Well, you don't know yet. Because the real test is whether they continue. That's great. Don't want to discourage you. But if they don't continue, it's a flash in the pan. You understand? It's not true conversion. Yeah, someone came forward on church and they wanted to receive Christ. Great. Let's see if they continue in the word. Many of those who profess salvation are not saved. Sometimes Christian workers are under a lot of pressure. You know, they're off in some place. They're trying to generate a little bit of money. How many people did you baptize this past year? Oh, we had 300 baptisms this year. Yeah, but 300 people in the water doesn't mean 300 people in heaven. Right? It might just mean 50. They did a study of Billy Graham's crusades. How many of the people that came forward at the end when he called them to salvation, what percentage of them were still in church following Christ just one year after that? The answer was 10%. That means 90% walked away. Now, that's still quite a harvest, and nothing, taking nothing away from Billy Graham. 10% of 5,000 that come forward, that's a lot of converts. Praise God for that, right? It just tempers our understanding and expectation of what true conversion is. In Acts 14.22, it says to the new believers, they were encouraged to continue in the faith. They were reminded through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, it warns the Jews who believe in Christ, if a man shrinks back, God's soul has no pleasure in him. What a warning. The local church has to be set up so that people new to the faith have a place to go to and get taught at their level. Some of you would be very good at that, but you need to volunteer. These expositional sermons are aimed at everybody, whatever level that you are at. But we need introductory classes on Sundays and, yes, at other times of the week, FOF, Bible surveys, to ground people in the faith. I've heard people say, you know, Hope Bible Church is a good place for people that are already saved and they're mature and all of that, but other churches are better for reaching the lost. I totally reject that. And so do these verses that stress that this was an evangelizing church totally dedicated to teaching. Honestly, the worst thing that can happen to someone who's seeking the Lord or who's a brand new convert is to end up in a church where they will not be taught the word well. And thus, they may not continue in the teaching or worse, they will think they're continuing in the teaching and they're not. It's actually they're being deceived. And so teaching is that important. Tenth and last, and we'll end here, our tenth ground rule evangelism produces a distinct community of believers. Verse 26, it says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. From the passive form of that verb, krematizo, to be called, it it appears that this title of Christian was given to the early believers, not by the believers themselves, but by outsiders. 
who were looking in at the community and trying to figure them out and gave them this label. When the church received, when the church heard this label and were called this, it looks like they loved the name and they quickly embraced it. They adopted it. They even began transacting their business under this name. It gave them their identity. Remember, up to this point in time, the believers were almost entirely Jews and half-Jews, Samaritans, right? Now the church is beginning to step out of the shadow of Israel. What do you call those kind of people? They were looking for something. Well, up to this point in time, Christians have been called brothers back in chapter 1, verse 15. They've been called believers in chapter 4, verse 32. They've been called disciples. That means, you know, like a student, a learner, chapter 6, verse 2. They're called the church in chapter 8, verse 1. They're called saints or holy ones in chapter 9, verse 13. Now they've been given this beautiful expression, Christian. Christianus. The name is a cross of Latin and Greek structures. Christ is the Greek, meaning the anointed one. The suffix ianos is Latin, meaning identified with or belonging to. We belong to Christ. We are identified with Christ. What a great name. It's similar to the term Herodian or the term Augustinian, those identified with those people. I know today the name Christian has been watered down, right? Anybody that's acting like an idiot can say, I'm a Christian. And people go, oh, you know, you can't, you can't judge. can't judge. <laughs> I hope we don't abandon the name because it's still an apt name. We are people connected to Jesus. When people come in here, it should be they hear us talking about who? Christ. And singing about who? Christ. And preaching about Christ. First Peter 4.16, it says, If any of you suffers as a Christian, there's the name again, he is not to be shamed, but is to glorify God in that name. I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian. I'm not ashamed to be part of a community of believers that was produced because of the evangelism that was done to each of our souls. Because of evangelism, we have a distinct community. Some of you haven't caught on to that yet. You come to church on Sunday and you think that's your, your duty. That is not it. You're part of a community. You should have multiple points of contact with that community during the week. When you got saved, you didn't realize it. Maybe you should realize it now. You were moved out of whatever it was that you were connected with before into now a community of believers and not just this local church, but yes, this local church first. This is where you join. This is where you're a member. This is where your friends should be. This is where your ministry should be. This is where you should be pouring yourself out. If you're not well known here, that's your fault. But more than that, when we read about the other gamma churches or really, frankly, any of the gospel preaching churches, they're part of the greater Christian community, and we love them and we're connected to them too, right? Everyone should know when you get saved, now there is your new community. We are related to one another. Don't be aloof from the body of Christ. Do you know that this is the place that Jesus said he wanted to reveal himself. That's why he called the church his own body. If you want to go anywhere in the world and figure out what it means to be a Christian, we may be out there preaching the gospel again and again, and the unbeliever scratching his head, I can't figure this gospel thing out. When they come in here, they have a picture. They have an illustration. They see how you treat one another. They see the heart that you have. They see us together. And then they can put it together and say, now I understand what the gospel produces. It produces an entirely different society. I want to be a part of that. 
I was listening to my mom's testimony about how she got saved. I've been thinking a lot about her since she went on to be with the Lord uh, back in, uh, I think it was September. And her testimony was when she came to the Methodist church and the man was witnessing up front that she really didn't get what he was saying about the gospel, but she kept looking in his face and said, she was so sick and tired of the Methodist saying, you know, God loves you and so do I. She was so sick of that phrase. But she's looking in the face of this man and she said, this man loves Christ. And whatever he has, I don't have and I want it. And it was the body of Christ that helped get her pastor pride and realized she didn't really know Christ. As we close this study on evangelism, I beg you, don't let anything keep you from evangelizing. I don't know what I missed in this series that is a concern of yours. Bring it to one of the leaders and talk it through with them. Don't make excuses, people. Don't focus on your weaknesses and your inabilities and your fears. The Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church has a historical document online of a great and mostly forgotten black evangelist Methodist preacher here in the USA. The article is entitled, Remembering Black Harry, an American Methodist Pioneer. I want to quote from that. It says, Harry Hosier was born into slavery in North Carolina around 1750, but by 1781 he was a freed man, most likely having earned the status helping the Patriots' cause in the American Revolutionary War. That same year, at a Virginia church, he gave his most famous sermon, The Barren Fig Tree, based on Luke chapter 13, 6 through 9. It was the first documented sermon by an African-American preacher. At some point, Hosier accepted an offer from Francis Asbury, the great Methodist evangelist, to be his carriage driver. The pair frequently traveled throughout Delaware, Maryland, New York, and New Jersey. Unable to read, Hosier showed a knack for memorizing extensive Bible passages read to him by Asbury on their long drives. Asbury began to rely on Hosier to warm up the crowds waiting outside churches to hear Asbury's sermons. At times, Hosier proved the more popular of the two. As people were brought to tears by the black preacher's spiritual conviction and what was described as his musical voice. In 1784, Hosier was the first known African-American preacher to deliver a sermon to a white congregation. He was among a select group of ministers associated with the Second Great Awakening Movement that began in 1790 and spread the Methodist gospel throughout the country. His contemporaries, in addition to Asbury and Allen, included the greats John Wesley, Thomas Koch, and George Whitfield. Brothers, I would say to you that here is a man who did not let the prejudices against him and his lack of education keep him from becoming a great evangelist. And God knows that in heaven he is no second-class citizen. Go out, win loss for Christ. This is your duty. This is your privilege. Lord God, thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved our souls. Take our church with its weaknesses and work your power among us. We pray it, Christ's mighty name and unto his glory. And all God's people said, amen. amen.